0: Welcome to the Healthcare IT Today CIO podcast. I'm John Lynn, the founder and chief editor at Healthcare IT Today, and I'm excited to bring you the most practical healthcare CIO insights and perspectives. We know your job is challenging, and we want to help you be more successful. And our guest today is Dr. Jennifer Goldman. She's the chief of primary care at Memorial Healthcare System. Welcome, Jennifer.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, excited for this discussion. I think this is one of the hottest topics for people. Uh, you know, I, I'd say right now, workforce is t- number one. <laughs> you know, which is a, is a problem for everyone. But the you know, using data and SDH is such a big topic. But anyway, before we go there, tell us a little bit about yourself and Memorial Healthcare System.
1: Absolutely. So I'm a family physician. I've been in practice for just over 15 years. And I've spent eight of those years here at Memorial Healthcare System as the Chief of Memorial Primary Care, our employed primary care arm of the organization. Memorial is quite a large healthcare system. In fact, we're one of the largest public healthcare systems in the nation.
0: Yeah, well, and I think this is why I was so interested in having you on the CIO podcast, is because SDOH is like a buzzword everyone's talking about it, but I want to know, like, what's really happening? What can we really do? So tell us about it. What's been done at your organization? Let's start with integrating, like, SDOH data into your EHR.
1: Absolutely. And as I think the listeners know, SDOH stands for social determinants of health. And these are the things, really, that are, in many cases, have been outside of the focus of healthcare and yet are responsible for about 80% of somebody's total health. And those are things like access to transportation, access to healthy food, Uh, access to caregivers for loved ones, um, and and the list goes on and on. Uh, Housing is a a huge one, especially where we live and, and really increasingly throughout the country. And so now healthcare systems are well aware that these factors influence health, But the biggest question is really how to integrate the screening, the documentation, and doing something about these factors within our current overstressed, overworked uh, workforce, and that's really what I've been focusing on. And so what we've done here at Memorial is that we've integrated a workflow where within our EHR, we're able to add screening questions regarding those social determinants of health. And then we build a a pop-up for the, the providers, for the clinicians to see which factors the patient is suffering from. And then with a click of the button, the provider is able to number one, add that problem to the problem list and the visit diagnosis of that encounter. Number two, actually route uh, the message that has that, that patient's information and the specific social determinant of health that they're struggling with to a predetermined pool of either social workers or health coaches, depending on the department and the organization. And three, then those case workers are able to reach out to the patient and give them really personal personalized advice with regard to which issues they're struggling with.
0: Interesting. So that screener that you talk about, is that done by the nurse or is that done at intake by the patient? How are you approaching, you know, collecting the and you know, doing those screeners?
1: Absolutely, one size can't fit all with the, with the social determinants of health questions, and part of that is because of um, the populations that we're dealing with are different, and everyone has access as part of social determinants of health to different technology resources and and various resources with regard to the patient's time to do this, and so what we've done is a combination approach. We have in our primary care program, we have our case management department, our our um, health coaches do a lot of this screening for patients. That's how we started for patients who have multiple chronic conditions and who may be going to the emergency room a number of different times. It's imperative that we know what barriers to care they have, because our goal in value based care is to provide them with the resources to achieve the best health care outcome possible, the best health uh, status possible. And many of these social determinants of health can get in the way of achieving that. And so how we started this was having our care management team do the screening What we've now developed is a program for our medical assistants to do that screening so that we can screen more patients and not only focus on those with chronic conditions. And then the third way to do this is something that we're going to leverage with the rest of the organization. And, And again, it's not a one size fits all approach, but it's having the patient engage in answering some of those questions as well. The big concern with that one is again, You can't roll it out as the only solution because some patients do just do not have the technology required to do that. And some have literacy issues where you can't ask those questions in a written form that they have to be asked verbally. And so we're trying to incorporate those nuances of social determinants of health in the solutions that we put forward as well
0: yeah well i think it's interesting too that you're popping this up to the provider the clinician i guess there's two questions there like is this the nurse or is it the doctor that's seeing these pop-ups and two how do you avoid kind of them ignoring (laughs) you know because alert fatigue is a real thing for nurses and doctors so yeah how are you approaching that those two things
1: Absolutely. And and developing a BPA or best practice advisory for a physician is always the last option. Mm -hmm. Um, However, with social determinants of health and the fact that it's so tied into medical management in many ways, these are factors that providers should be aware of, Mm -hmm. that the way we were doing this previously is that our care teams were screening for these, maybe not in a formalized way as we're doing now, but they were screening for these as part of their intake of patients. The issue was that the provider was not aware of the struggles that the patient was having. And the reason why that's important are a couple of things. Number one, my biggest pet peeve is when providers document non-compliant in a patient's record, it seems quite paternalistic and often doesn't take into account all of the other things that somebody's struggling with just to get into the office to begin with. And so, so it's important for providers to know what patients are going through because I think that it helps them to develop a more personalized care plan. So that's that's part of the reason. And then the other reason is documentation of these social determinants of health for purposes of um, risk adjustment coding and documentation really does fall on providers. And it's important that providers understand um, what these social determinants are, but I didn't wanna add more work to our frontline providers. That's never something that I would wanna do. (laughs) And so coming up with a solution that basically is a one-stop pop-up, no matter how many of the social determinants of health a patient is suffering from, was the first choice. And when that pops up, it's already defaulted for the provider to click accept, and so it's just a one-click. One and that one-click adds those social determinants of health to the problem list and to the visit diagnosis. And then, as discussed previously, it automatically involves the social worker or the care team further to get those resources. The the reason why adding it to the problem list and the visit diagnosis are so important and why we needed to do it on the provider's end is because of what I talked about with regard to billing and also because of the personalized care plan. So previously, if a patient had on their problem list COPD, congestive heart failure, and hypertension, let's say, and now has on their problem list COPD, heart failure, hypertension, homelessness, and food insecurity, then a provider can look at that problem list throughout the organization, depending on where the patient is interacting with the organization, and come up with perhaps a different regimen to help the patient take their medicine. Maybe something that's not three times a day would be more important for this person if we could try to do it once a day. Maybe injections are not feasible for a certain disease state because of a patient's living conditions, what oral options can we think about instead and then finally cost becomes a huge consideration and it's something that unfortunately happens many times after the provider's already written for the (laughs) medication. I really wanted to change that narrative and have people think about it on the front end so that that way the patient could be involved. Listen, I have a new medicine that I wanna put you on for your diabetes because the prior ones aren't working, but I see that you're having some of these struggles. So what I'll do is I'll get the pharmacy involved right away from the beginning to make sure that you can afford this medicine. And if you can't, I have other options for you. Those kinds of conversations I think are really important because primarily it takes the stigma out of a patient really suffering with many of these things on their own. And it involves their, in our case, the primary care doctor who has this continuous relationship-based focus with the patient and is really with them in all areas of life. And so incorporating some of these items on the problem list was key. And then finally, the visit diagnosis, really the the billing section of the visit, it's key to have these documented. And I know a lot of healthcare um, institutions have been struggling with um, the new CMS requirements that are coming out to have a lot of these social determinants of health documented. They are going to be risk adjusted in the future, and that's significant for value-based care. And unfortunately, many of these mandates come down on the shoulders of providers many times. And it's basically, well, you know what, you have to ask these patients this, and now you need to know the code for homelessness, or you need to know the code for, um, you know, food insecurity, or at least you need to type it in and remember to do that each time. And that's just something that I've never seen work very well with our group. We've been extremely successful in transitioning this group of practices from, Um, really a a community clinic taking care of many uninsured and underserved patients to now taking care of everybody in the community, insured and uninsured. And I had to develop a workflow that was consistent with that, you know, pair agnostic ethic. And and I wanted to be able to do it with the least amount of effort possible on on the part of the providers, but still bringing them into these important conversations.
0: Yeah, and I think you cover, interestingly, the clinical impact of knowing this type of data. Are you working in other ways, like with your case managers, to you know, connect patients to other resources that may go beyond just you know a less expensive medication or things like that. Uh, and, and how do you do that, right? I mean, I, and I hear about it all the time. People saying, "Oh, we put this SDOH data into the system," and you're like, "Great," but if you don't connect them to the right resources, who cares if you don't have the right data? So, how are you connecting that, right? Your clinical teams, your case managers, to the right resources that are often in the community, not necessarily at your health system.
1: Right, And we really use the mantra that it's more than a handout. that's something that we talk about a lot. Uh, hmm. A lot of times it's really a handout of a piece of paper um, and that's what I mean by handout giving somebody a piece of paper and saying these are the resources go and go good and luck
0: get them. Good yeah. luck
1: And you know and you know and and there those resources are readily available to people who are able to find them and look. and so certainly it's an, it's a step up to be able to give somebody a piece of paper and say these sure. are the food banks in your area but in our experience, it's just not enough because when you're struggling with food insecurity, oftentimes you're struggling with other things as well. And it could be transportation needs. Again, it could be housing needs. It could be, and in our area, relatively common for people to be taking care of multiple generations in the same household, or to be living multigenerationally. And there are many struggles besides just being able to go to a food bank and and be able to get healthy food. And so what our case managers do is they really develop this individualized approach. They reach out to the person and say, listen, I see that you've been dealing with this and your doctor wanted me to give you a call and ask how I can help. And then they go through some of the struggles the person's having, and oftentimes our patients know where the food banks are but the issues are maybe the hours of operation or the issues are that they don't have a car and for many uh, for a while during covid food banks were would drop food in a trunk of a person's car but if a person doesn't have a car then you know how would they access that food. And so really working collaboratively with our community organizations has been huge. We have a very large community services team at Memorial Healthcare System and they develop all of these unique programs um, such as caregiving programs for our elderly patients or um, mothers in recovery programs for mothers who, who um, were recently pregnant and are suffering with addiction. Um, and there are, there are multiple programs that have been developed by memorial in collaboration with the community so that we can really put together all of these resources as an individualized package for the patient. And I'll give one more example, we also yeah. are in a in a medical legal partnership with legal aid and so we actually have an attorney either on site or remotely for our patients who are struggling with uh, issues related to eviction from housing because of uh, rapidly rising housing issues. And many times the legal aid attorney is able to intervene and possibly get a stay on that eviction, which gives somebody a few more months to actually get affordable housing in concert with our teams. And so we've tried to think about all of the different elements of why somebody is not successful in getting this on their own so that we can bring to them a range of options.
0: That's amazing. So let's talk about that. Like, are there any stories you could share, you know, patient stories? I'd love to hear kind of the impact of these efforts. Do you you have any uh, example patient stories that kind of illustrate, you know, what kind of impact this is having?
1: Absolutely. Actually, just the other day in my own in my own practice, I practice clinically still as well. And mm-hmm. in my own practice, I had a, a patient of a, an elderly patient who um, is in her 70s and is struggling. She and her husband uh, live together in a very small apartment, and the rent uh, has risen so fast over the last few months, really over the last year, that they're now faced with not being able to afford it. And she. Mm-hmm came in to me um, via and had discussions or com- um, concerns about her health that really went a circuitous route before she talked to me about that. And that's what happens multiple times. And sure. you know, her diabetes was greatly controlled previously, and now she's having struggles controlling her diabetes, her blood pressures up. There were just Things that didn't seem right. And so, of course, I could have taken one route and just raised the medicines and said, you know, you need to do a better job on your diet and make sure you walk and then come back and see me in three months. But I probed and I talked to her about her situation. And because our staff had done some of the screening, I had that pop up, but I really wanted to weave it in the conversation, you know, so that she would tell me about it. And she broke down and she said, you know, Dr. Goldman, I've been really struggling and I'm embarrassed. I didn't want to talk to you about this, but I don't have a place to live after next month and I don't know what I'm going to do. And I've been so stressed out about it that I've been forgetting to take my medicines and I misplaced one of them. And I'm so worried about rent that I haven't had time or money to go back to the pharmacy to get my refill. I know it's there, but I haven't gotten it. And so she was really distraught and that's really what we spent the time talking about during the visit. And so I asked her, would it be okay with you if I connected you with some resources? We happen to have a free legal service here. We also have social workers, health coaches here And I think that if they put their heads together, they might be able to come up with a solution. And so we were able to get her connected right then and there with the social worker. The social worker talked to her about options and decided that the legal aid option was a good one for her, at least to stop the process right now. And so our legal aid attorney got involved did actually um, grant the courts granted a stay for her eviction. So she was able to have some more months uh, where she and her husband could plan for where they were going to live. And she was able to work with the social worker to get a a housing um, situation stabilized for her really in another area and another neighborhood that You know, she really hadn't thought about living in and had it considered, but that was relatively close to her family and it's something that they could afford. And so when she came in to me for the follow up, so much of this was already taken care of that I could really focus on some of the medical issues at hand because she was really able to at least take a deep breath. It, It doesn't, you know, this doesn't solve the underlying issues. There are multiple structural and political uh, determinants of health that are something that is oftentimes not discussed in the healthcare systems and, and things that are going to continue to impact my patient's health and the health of our communities. But if we could help her with this one small thing and get a roof over her head and her husband's head, who was also suffering from chronic conditions, so that we could help her better manage her own conditions and really think about this in a holistic view, then I think we've done our job of focusing on her totality of health and not just on the health care that she's coming to us to provide.
0: Yeah, Matt, I think we all wish we had Dr. Goldman as our doctor. Yeah. That, that is a great story. Thanks for sharing that. Are there other areas where you see maybe some holes in what's being done from an SDOH perspective that that you still needs to be filled, or you're like, man, I wish I could solve this?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it's it goes back to the the person power at the end of the day to to help to work with communities and local governments to really get the solutions that our patients need, you know, from the get-go. I think that's a huge hole. And um, and and I know there's been critique um, on part of the healthcare community as to why is this also falling on our shoulders kind of thing. And I think there's two sides to that. I think as my story illustrates, I think it belongs squarely on our shoulders, especially in primary care, but really in all specialties to really mm-hmm. fully know the extent of the situations our patients are suffering from but there are holes in terms of what we can do within our communities, and sometimes there needs to be policy changes to, um, to help with, you know, skyrocketing rent costs and to help with the food insecurity and other things. That's, I know, beyond the scope of this podcast and well beyond my scope, but the but those are, I think, glaring holes. And I think also from a workflow perspective in our healthcare systems, it's important to know from the provider aspect, if we've fixed this, which I certainly think we have internally to be able to show the providers, okay, these are the things that your patient's suffering from. We're going to take care of it on the back end. This is how you document on it. You know, press this button and then go from there. We've solved one aspect, Mm -hmm. but in terms of we're going to take care of it for you, who are those, who is that personnel? Who are, who are those people? And as we grow in our focus on outpatient services and we grow in value-based care, questions arise as to, should some of these resources be centralized versus kept within the individual departments? Um, Do, you know, does the neurosurgical department have as much um, vested interest in doing this and and developing a full workflow for helping patients address social determinants of health as does the patient-centered medical home primary care practice? And the answer there is, of course, no. But on the same focus, the neurosurgeons are interested in this. The surgeons are interested in this. Um, again as long as somebody can help their patients they're interested right. in screening this as long as they know that they're not going to screen someone and then nothing happens mm. and so i think that's the next step in this is understanding from a workforce workforce perspective when to centralize what resources are needed how do we partner with the community so that the the you know the workforce within the healthcare system is not so overburdened by by this new responsibility
0: yeah i mean you've given some great perspectives for cios on this on actually implementing it right and that's what i love about this episode so far you know as we wrap up we always like to end with some career advice uh so what would you say is the best career advice you've ever gotten
1: do something you love Mm. do something you love that's what it's all about you've you've got to this is hard work all of this is hard work yeah and, and it does feel like work some days and some <laughs> days it just feels like a passion, but you have to have that passion and you have to have that perseverance and everything else can be learned really ultimately.
0: Yeah. Well, I can see that you love this and that you're doing a great job with it. So thanks for so much for taking time to be part of this episode. And thanks everyone for watching and listening. If you want to find more great healthcare IT content like this, be sure to check it out at healthcareittoday.com or search for the CIO podcast by Healthcare IT Today on your favorite podcasting application. Thanks, Jennifer.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.